You're listening to Secret Sonics, a podcast exploring the creative side of music production. Hello and welcome back to Secret Sonics. I am your host, Ben Wallach. I am joined today by Eric Sarafin. Eric Sarafin is a gold and platinum award-winning record producer and mixer. He has worked with many internationally known acts, including The Far Side, Tone Lock, Ben Harper, Lifehouse, Nine Days, Bare Naked Ladies, Amy Grant, and Foreigner, just to name a few. Eric is also a published author and has written several books under the pen name of Mixerman about recording, producing, and mixing. After 25 years based out of Los Angeles, Eric is now living in Asheville, North Carolina, where he produces and mixes records out of several world-class recording facilities located there. I personally first came upon Eric's book, Zen and the Art of Mixing, while perusing a Barnes & Noble music section on a trip to New York. I skimmed through the book and bought it on a whim, and to be honest, it really opened my mind in a serious way. I've since recommended it to countless friends and advice seekers looking to get started at production and mixing. So with all that said, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Secret Sonics, Eric. Hey man, you're showing your age, tone lock. It's tone loke. (laughs) (laughs) He was a hip hop artist from the 90s. You know this, you know his song, eh, 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 Wild Thing, where they use the Van Halen sample. Oh, maybe. Are you familiar with that song? Well, I'm, I'm familiar with Wild Wild Thing, but... Uh, yeah, Wild Thing is... Uh, all right, anyway. Damn. I apo- I'm going to apologize right. for my, my lack of, uh, of, of old school hip-hop to me. knowledge. Don't apologize to apologize to tone. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Hey, man, thanks for the introduction. I appreciate it. This is Mixer Man coming to you from beautiful North Carolina. Amazing. So... Uh, Mixer Man slash Eric, tell us a bit about how you got started getting involved in music production. Oh my God, you're gonna go all the way back. Yeah, you, you know, can... I've told I've told all of this. I'm I'm gonna give you this uh, real, you know. Yeah, the basic, keep it qu- uh, keep it quick. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, basically, when I was in high school, a representative from Berklee College of Music came to my band class and was like, "Who who's thought about a career in music?" And I was 17 and was and starting to think about careers. And I went and listened to his spiel. I didn't end up going to Berkeley right away. I went to a Rutgers University for a year. I studied piano with Kenny Barron, one of the great jazz piano players. That illuminated for me that I was not to be a jazz piano player. And I packed up and went up to Berkeley College of Music, took a bunch of classes there, changed my major a bunch. Not one recording class at that school did I take. I didn't. And then, but I ended up at a studio called Dimension Sound Studios in Boston. And I, I cut my chops there. It wasn't a very busy studio at this point, although it had a lot of great gear and a really nice room. And uh, I just practiced and I recorded and I recorded friends from Berkeley and I recorded my songs and I recorded all sorts of stuff. And, you know, for the first three years, I probably didn't record much worth a damn, but uh, I sure did get a lot of practice in. And once what I was doing, I felt like it sounded like like it was at least competing with professionally nationally released CDs, I decided I'd go to LA. So I packed up and I went to LA and um, the first record, I, you know, I took, got a couple of gigs and then, but within about a year, year and a half, I was uh, recording the Far Side's uh, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side, which was, which is one of the quintessential hip hop albums uh, of all time. Uh, very popular album. Many people know it. For sure. And that pretty much started my career. 
Uh, I recorded that album. I mixed some of the songs. Uh, and, you know, I went to L.A. to become a producer, but I found out pretty quickly that I was good at mixing and people thought I was good at mixing. And so I there was a lot of work for that and mixing paid well. And so I ended up doing that for, uh, I almost mixed exclusively for years, probably seven years or something. And then I started doing other taking other gigs and recording with other producers and stuff because I was having trouble making the transition from mixing to producing labels. They didn't view that as a, as a viable stepping stone to producing oddly. <laughs> so that's it. That's the, that's the quick, Amazing. the long quick. So, so what do you look for in an artist when you're trying to see if it's going to be a good fit working together? Well, I mean the whole beginning process, once I decide that I want to produce someone is that process. So it's a two-way street, right? So yeah. I, it's got to work for me. It's got to work for them. Both. It's their album. They want to hire someone to do their album. It doesn't matter whether I'm going up against a guy that's only made one record or a guy that's who's got a discography that, that just shits all over mine. It makes no difference either way. The sale is the same. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work with this artist or this band. We're going to I'm a, I want to listen to all their songs. We're going to have a conversation about their songs. We're going to talk about which songs I feel are best, which songs they feel are best. We're going to talk about their lineup, the arrangement, the record. I'm going to start to have some vision as to what I want to do with the record. If I don't, then we're going to rehearse. And at that point, I will. Uh, we'll do pre-production. And so I don't even really... I'll talk money before pre-production just so that we can make sure we're in the right ballpark, but I don't really, I won't collect money until after uh, I've done pre-production. And uh -huh. I do that partly partly because it makes the, makes the artist and the band more comfortable, especially if they're independent. Label doesn't care so much, but the artist and the band can and will. And I do that because I don't want to necessarily get committed to something that I'm not feeling anymore, you know? Yeah. So, like, it takes... Like, I got to work with a band, and I just had a band here last week doing pre-production and rehearsals. And, you know, I got to work with them and, and work with parts and change parts and, 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 like, just make sure that what I'm bringing to the party and what I see as a vision is something that excites them. And if it is, then we're good to go. Yeah. And if it's not, that's okay. We've saved ourselves a nightmare. <laughs> right. So, you know. So you kind uh, of use, like, me, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's like you're using the pre-production process to see if it's a good fit and see if the vibe is right and both sides are happy. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. And make sure I'm not getting involved with someone who's crazy. I mean, <laughs> you can talk to someone and they'll tell you all the right things and then you get in there and you realize, oh, this person's going to do nothing that I ask of them. Okay, I'm, I don't want to do this gig. It's not a problem. You know, I don't get mad about it. I would get mad about it if I got into the gig and they're not listening to anything I say. That's why I got to like make sure that, yeah. you know, we're going to make the album that I foresee here. Yeah. And I'm selling them on the album that I foresee. I'm selling them on my vision. And when we're done the album, a lot of times we'll get really deep into a project, right? And there might be a song or some, or some issue where they're like, well, I think this is pulling it this way too far. And I'll point out, hey. We talked about all of this stuff in advance, and now you're talking about bringing this somewhere that we didn't talk about. Yeah. So 
I, I use that, I use those long conversations that we have and that time that we have and that trust that we build to hold them to account and to keep them uh, disciplined to what we decide we're going to do. That doesn't mean that someone can't say, make an audible and I can't say, oh my God, that's totally right. And we don't, we go and do it and go against the plan. But I'm just saying that artists, you know, it's very, people like to second guess themselves at a time in the process when they're no longer fresh and more times than not, that's going to, you're going to make bad decisions at that time. Your best decisions are made early. Mm -hmm. Stick with them as much as possible. If you made an early decision that's a, that was a disaster and you got to start over, start over. But it's I'm hard-pressed to break something down and change something that I had set up and envi envisioned from the beginning. Uh-huh. So you get very clear on the goal that you that you have in your brain basically. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's all hit or miss anyway, right? Yeah. We we got we got a song, we can we can argue, we could debate whether that song's going to be a hit. It's kind of a useless debate because no song's a hit until it actually has sales. So now whether it, it's going to get a reaction or whether it gets the most reaction, that's fine. So we can talk about which songs get the most reaction. But, you know, basically, if we treat the process like every song is the most important song in production we've ever done, we're never going to get done or it's going to take us 13 years, like, like, yeah. like Tool. Yeah. But... <laughs> But I didn't listen to that album, so I'm not commenting on it. So, but if I keep us focused and and we make a plan, we stick to the plan, and we finish the record, well, then we can evaluate the record for what it is. And you know, a lot of times we would record. I'll record a couple extras. That's less so nowadays than 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 when labels money was behind it. We'd record extras because sometimes you record a song and it doesn't come out the way you wanted it. You know. That's yeah. just the way it is. Or it didn't come out as great as you thought it could be. Or you think you can make it better. That's all fine. That's all good. But more times than not, I'm going to help deliver a product that's going to do the song, what it ne needs to do, and, and it's going to be great. But sometimes, you know, there's a decision, okay, that didn't come out as great. So if you treat the process not so preciously yeah. and you treat it like, I got to, you know, I got to make my decisions, trust my decisions and go with them. I've been making records a long time. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'm going to trust myself. And if I trust myself, good things happen. It's like the Malcolm Gladwell blink thing, you know? You make, make those instant decisions like really quickly. I'm not familiar with the reference. No, it's okay. It's a, it's a, it's like a, it's a book by... Is that a movie? Oh, No, book. no, it's a book. Oh, yeah. It's about, you know, people that have done something long enough. They know, they make snap decisions that are usually correct, basically. Exactly. But I, I actually advise, even when you're brand new at this, that you do it the same way. And the reason that I advise that is because, you know, you could argue, well, it's still, I'm learning. So I want to take my time and no, 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 no. Yeah, totally. You learn by finishing. Yes. A hundred percent. You finish... You listen to the record that you made, and you think it's great. You listen to it again a month later, maybe it's not as great. <laughs> you listen to it a year later, it's shit. Yeah, right? <laughs> totally. Or you listen to it after it's done, it's great. You listen to it a month later, it's still great, but it sounds totally different And then, for whatever reason. And then a year later, you listen, it sounds completely different again, and it's still great. And that's what you want. Yeah. But the only way to get there is to keep finishing records. Yeah. This, so this kind of goes just with, spend, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. No, this kind of go goes ahead. with, uh, you know, based on the books that I've read that you've written, like commitment is a very big 
thing that you adhere to, you know, making decisions and sticking with them, you know, not saving to do something later, you know, and then fix it in the mix, that kind of stuff. It kind of all blends together into this kind of philosophy that you have, I think. I do hammer that. But I, I mean, I will say that there, there's nothing wrong with reserving some decisions. I mean, there's some decisions that have to be reserved. And I'll have all sorts of stuff that I'll have on the side or in the back of the project or whatever that I may bring in and check or whatever. But at some point, if I can't fit them in, they're gone. You know what I'm saying? But I don't just leave them in there and keep them in there and keep them playing all the time just because I recorded them. Like, I'm trying to find the arrangement as I produce the record. So... First, we're in tracking. If it's a band, we're in tracking. So I, I arrange the record with the players and with the lineup themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And then we do overdubs. And then we're building upon what we've done with the tracking. Or sure. we're starting from, from scratch. We're programming. And we're programming the record. And we're building a one thing at a time. But it's okay to reserve decisions, but not important ones. Not ones that are critical to the record, right? Mm -hmm. So... Oh, ah, they could be critical. They could turn out critical, but like they aren't yet. So yeah, hopefully I didn't just confuse the shit out of people. No, I like what you're, <laughs> I like what you're saying. Uh, you, you know, you talk a lot about pre-production. Is that something that you also do with singer-songwriters, more programmed stuff, or is that more something that you reserve for bands? I can't even think of a singer-songwriter that I've worked with in a long time. I mean, I guess you could say Ben Harper is a singer-songwriter, but... Yeah, I mean, he's always had a band, so that's true. You know, and that's roots anyway. It's a whole different thing. So, singers, songwriters, I don't gravitate towards it because they kind of just are what they are. They are meandering. Uh, there's no band. If there is a band, it's a side band. Right. At that point, what are we making? We're making a singer songwriter record with a band. It's all very confusing. So that's not to say I wouldn't work with a singer songwriter because I'm I'm not particularly fond of country, but I've worked with a country act that I loved, that I adored. So there is no genre that there isn't something in it that I like, but there, there are things in that genre that I don't gravitate towards. I got you. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it sounds like you're mostly, for the most part, working with bands, groups, ensembles, I guess, coming together. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, I do work with some artists, but usually they have a band too. Usually they're an artist with a band, you know what I mean? So pre-production is pretty much always, always a part of your process. With a band, yeah. I mean, with an artist, it's more. We might as well just start recording because I'm going to be taking control at that point anyway. So, perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so what do you listen for the first time you hear a song? And that said, do you prefer to listen to a demo or a live performance or anything in particular? Well, I mean, they have what they have usually. So, I mean, usually people are just trying to scour hard drives to find mm -hmm. recordings and demos and stuff. And if it's not that, then they're basically just an acoustic guitar with a vocal in the room, which is always the most difficult. I shouldn't say that. I, I was going to say it's the most difficult demo to deal with is acoustic vocal, but there are advantages to it uh, because it's completely open. So right. you have plenty to, to imagine, right? But it's kind of a drag because what you're hearing is this acoustic vocal version and what what you need to realize could be so completely different from that that it can be difficult to imagine. I had that with this band that I was just talking about. I, I, I was really struggling with how to imagine this record and I told them, you guys are just going to have to come because they were struggling with it too. And so how am I supposed to help them figure out how to approach the record if they can't, if they don't even have a first clue of where how to approach the record? And 
that happens. And so, you know, they basically told me that they didn't like their first record and they want to like their second record album, I should say. And so, yeah. you know, I worked out with them here, you know what I mean? And that's like opening the computer, seeing what works, experimenting with sounds, stuff like that. No, we just got the band in the room and we just started playing the songs. And I said, what are you guys doing right now? Okay, let's let's break it down. All right. Uh, let's talk about the bass part. Uh, and maybe I'll like have them play it a couple of times and start singing some bass parts. I write a lot of bass parts for people. <laughs> nice. I'm, a bass Especially I'm when, personally a bass player, so I also have a... I'm a bass player at heart. I'm a keyboard player, but I'm a bass player at heart. Nice. Uh, if you if you forced me to go out on tour and play, I'd want to bring a Moog and just play bass. Nice, <laughs> but uh, maybe it'll happen one um, day. No, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was I just talking about? Um, oh yeah, the pre production giving people um, giving people bass lines. Oh yeah, and then like I'll work out the you know I might work on, if the drummer I, I might work on the drum pattern with them I might work on the approach completely like um some of these songs that this band did that they were just didn't know what to do they really didn't know what to do so when they played it, it was like okay that's pretty terrible all right so <laughs> let's let's approach this completely different and like one song I had them play like a uh, like a uh, snare roll kind of vibe beat and one we did a, a tom kind of beat and whatever and we just went outside the box a little bit with the stuff to try and uh, find something that brought it out of the it was a little straight ahead you know so we wanted to pull it out of that a little bit anyway that's that was the pro that's the process got it okay so take us on a tour through the creation of a typical song you you know chronologically how does it come together. It just it's uh, it's it's so different. It just depends. Every every act is different. I'll approach every act completely differently. Well, not completely differently, but you know, with rock bands, I'll typically track as much as I can in one setting in at the stu at a studio, and then I'll overdub and and fix things and and then and I'm kind of mixing as I go along. Like one of the things I do is let's say I go to the studio, I record ten songs, basic tracks, bring them back to the house. I go through them, I do mixes. I make mix sessions of everything. Now, my mix sessions have multi-outputs because I'm going through my dangerous uh, Convert 8s, which are my D to A converters. Mm -hmm. I have 16 of those. And those goes, go into my 2-bus, my dangerous 2-bus uh, for analog summing, which then goes into my SSL G384 stereo compressor, uh, which then goes to my dangerous Convert 2 converters. I just got this whole dangerous package. I love everything that these guys do. Chris Muth and um, and Bob do is amazing. And so I decided, I, I, I sold my last set of converters and, and I got a big package here of these. And so my mixes are, are going through this analog chain, right? And through all these converters. Yeah. But recording, I, I can't, I don't want to do that. So what I do is I do a, a, a rough mix of what I've got. Let's say it's bass, drums, and, and a guitar. You know, it's probably bare bones. Probably haven't done a lot of overdubs. And I will make a, a mix of that and into a session, and then I'll print a stereo mix of that, and then I'll open a new session. I'll put that stereo mix in. And we used to call those slave sessions. Uh -huh. uh, out of respect, I'm going to call them work sessions. <laughs> and so... These work sessions are what I record to. So let's say we, we I, I open a work session and we want to record guitar parts. Well, I'll call this guitar session and I'll record guitars for however many hours we're recording guitars for. And yeah. then I'm going to clean them up 
I'm going to break them down to however many full tracks I need. I'm going to bounce my takes together and stuff. And then I'm going to move them over to my mix session and I'm going to add them into my mix. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to, uh, the next day usually, because uh, I probably move on to another song for more guitars, right? The next day probably, uh, or the next time I go to that song, I'll do another mix with the guitars this time. And then I'll take that stereo. I'm only spending like 10 minutes on this mix, by the way, okay? So yeah. maybe initially, I'll, do, I'll if I want to put some compression stuff on some things, I'll take 30 minutes on the initial tracking mix, maybe. Uh but normally, each time I, I'm adding a new section, I'm only spending 10 minutes or so on the mix just to see how it's working, cool. feel it out. Then I make a new work, work tape. Okay, now we're going to do keyboards. I name that session Keys. We, do, we start recording our keys. And I do this every time we start adding and doing a new session where we're adding stuff. I make a new session. This way, I've committed to my guitars in my mix session. But... If I go and I'm like, oh my God, he played a he yeah. played the wrong note there. I can go back to my guitar session. Yeah. I can I can go back to my comp take. I can go find the, the bad note, fix it, re re uh, bounce that, and reimport that back into my mix session. And within five minutes, I've fixed it. And I didn't have to keep all of those takes all the time open as I'm working on a session. Wow. Now, why do I do that? Because it saves re- computer resources. Yeah, was, and I have a I powerful. Thinking. I have a powerful enough computer for this, but I still want to save resources, and I want to have a mix session, and I can't record on my mix session, so I have to do it anyway. But it's a good idea to use work sessions because it makes it so you can always get back to anything that you did along the way because you have those sessions saved as separate sessions, and they just sit there. And then when you're done with your record, you can get rid of them if you want. Whatever, if you want to save space, but yeah, they're hard, not you know, hard cluttering your way at yeah. the time. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's kind of like the inverse of what I think most people do, which is they'll kind of just keep everything in one session, right? Record everything in there and then export it and then do a new mix session or just mix inside that same session. It's kind of like yeah, I don't want to mix. I don't want to mix everything at the end anymore because there was very good reasons for mixing everything at the end. In the old days, there were a lot of good reasons. One, the mixer a lot of times was different from the recording engineer, so the mixer was going to go somewhere else. Two, mixers didn't really have mix suites. We went to studios, so you would hire, we'd hire a studio, you'd hire a mixer. And so, like, the mixer was going to start the mix from scratch no matter what, so why make mix sessions other than a rough, you know what I mean? Then there's, um, we're not on tape. You couldn't do a mix session because you were on tape. Right. So... What, what were you saving it to? You were, you're, you're not going to save your console because you're constantly changing the EQs and everything. Besides, you're in kind of in a discovery mode as you're recording the thing anyway. I'm not changing my... That's why I don't mind being on a stereo mix to record to. It has to be a decent rec- stereo mix also. So you got to learn how to get good at mixing. Otherwise, you're going to have guitar players saying, man, I can't record to this. You know what I mean? So I, don't have a, I need more kick drum. So what else are reasons? Oh, you had a limited number of compressors and EQs and stuff to use. So, and you wanted to use them again because you, you kind of, every, every phase we, we, we would compress a little bit more rather than just slamming something and having the artifacts of the compressor 
right away. You know what I mean? Sometimes right. you did that, but that's an artistic choice at that point. If you don't want to hear the, the compression, then you want to record the compression in parallel over, over time. So, yeah. but nowadays... I have instant recall. The session opens up exactly the way I left it. So why not record? Why not mix as I go along? Besides, that tells me where I'm at. Yeah. Really, you know. So by the time I'm done, there's still a mix process. I'll probably go in and kind of re-hit it for an hour. But I really shouldn't spend much more than an hour on a mix of a production after I've, I've gotten everything done. Wow. Brilliant. So it's kind of like everything comes in stages and at the end it's pretty easy to finish it up. Well, you've got you've done all the work, and you know on on if if on occasion I I get to my mix where it's at and it's just it's just a disaster, then I'll just I don't usually put too much automation in my mix session until I've really got most of the stuff in it. You know, what yeah. I mean? When the arrangement is basically complete, yeah, for the most part, yeah. And I, that, mean, I might do some. That's that last hour of work that you're putting in, basically. And a lot of times I won't even do like let's say I have a guitar part where the guitar player played the verses and he played the choruses on the same guitar but I need the choruses like 3 dB louder on the guitar parts, right? Well, you could, rather than automate something like that, I'll just it. clip it. Yeah. I'll just cut it and then just make a new track and move it to the the new track and then set the static level a little louder. That way I I'm not trying to work you know, within automation at a, at a time when automation is kind of a pain in my ass. You know what I mean? So yeah. also I do that anyway in a mix also, because if I can avoid using, doing an auto move, then that's better because then when I decide, uh, maybe I only need that guitar 2 dB louder in the chorus, all I have to do is grab the fader and bring it down 1 dB rather than to go in to the automation line and go find the three events, the three chorus events and bring them all down 1 dB, you know? Yeah, totally. So it's about efficiency. Totally. I find I'm using less and less automation these days except for lead vocals, you know? Mm. That's because everybody compresses everything so much. It's kind of nice. It's good. Everything's super compressed these days. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying I do, you know, I do less automation because I'm doing a lot of clip gaining. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's that too. That's what I started doing recently is like, I used to just leave the levels where they were at and the levels are all over the map. I mean, it's amazing. People will print really low, people will print really hot. And so like, sometimes my faders will be like so far down. It's really kind of a drag. And so, you know, I'm in Logic and I just started, they have the gain now on the side in the inspector. So... Now I just go through and I gain everything on my initial pass yeah. of balances mm -hmm. just to get things in the ballpark so that when I start, when I really start to uh, get balances in earnest, I'm pretty much starting with all my faders at zero. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Thanks for the tip. That's brand new, that one. Yeah. No, but it's great. <laughs> that's because they're adding all these features to DAWs, you know, and maybe, maybe people have had that feature for a while, but they've added it in such a way in logic that it makes sense for me to use it now. And so... They make life a lot easier, these things. Yeah. Logic, I mean, I also use Logic, and it's just getting better with each with each version. Oh, for sure. It's an amazing program now. Yeah, it's super strong, e even for editing audio. Everything. Anybody who says, oh, oh I don't use Logic because of the editing, hasn't ever edited in Logic, or if they did, they didn't spend the time to understand how to edit in Logic. And then if you say, well, why can't I edit like Pro Tools? 
I, it can. I could set it up exactly like Pro Tools. It's ridiculous. Except you won't have to deal with fades because Logic automatically finds a null point for you. You know how, how rare it is for me to get a pop? Yeah, I, I never have pops <laughs> either. So You can do it, but you got to like try. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, I kind of tell people that Logic is, I think, the best combination of like getting the creative juices started, you know, with the VSTs and everything, and also having great editing and mixing workflow. Mm. In any event, yeah. So do, do you use any templates? Oh, yeah, I have templates for sure. I have one that I call the big template. And uh, for some reason in Logic, the templates are a little a little screwy. Like, I have one that has all sorts of, uh, you know, reverbs and stuff and all set up and everything. But when I open that session, for some reason, like, the dry is on. Like, they're not – it doesn't realize that it's a return. It's on a reverb return. And then the dry volume is up. So I got to go through when I open the template and take out all the mix – you know, all the dry information and make them pure wet. That's kind of a drag. But, um, Interesting. yeah, I've got one that has like, you know, five kick drums, five snare drums, five, whatever. It's easy just to go Apple D and add another track. But it makes it so I could just drag stuff over really quick and get it into sessions fairly quick. I have EQs and compressors on those. I'll pop them in. I usually reset them. There's no presets that I use as far as that's concerned because everything's different. Yes. So once I get my levels, I guess then, you know, that's new, me getting the levels on the on the clips. But once I get those, then then I start bringing in the compressors and the EQs and everything and I start from always start from the bottom of the mix and work up because we're we're dealing with a we're dealing with a foundation. The bottom holds the mix up. If the bottom falls apart, the mix crumbles. So we may as well start there. And I build it like it's a house. And I build it up, and then once we got the structure up, then we start to do the uh, the fine tuning and kind of fuck it up for a while, and then bring it back again. <laughs> nice. Do you have any favorite creative tools? Anything that you use a lot that gives some mojo? You know, I I don't I don't ascribe uh, any emotion to any tool uh, other than tools that uh, help me solve problems. So that could be any plugin at any time, really. I will say this, though, you know, a lot of people these days are recording with, um, you know, interfaces are their pre are the preamps are in their interfaces. And yeah. so there is an analog component to it, but it's not like a, it's not the same as an analog preamp. They're modeling. It's a model. You know, they're modeling distortion on those things. So as a result, a lot of interface preamps don't actually offer a lot of distortion. And when I say distortion, everybody thinks, you know really obvious audible distortion. Not all distortion is obvious or audible. I mean, it is audible, but you know, you have to be trained to hear it. So, you know, there is slight amounts of distortion that a good preamp adds. In fact, that's what I would argue is what makes one preamp more valuable than another. In many cases is how they distort. Yeah. The Neve 1073 is outrageously expensive. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay that kind of money for a 1073, even though I could probably say with confidence it's probably the greatest preamp ever invented. But it's so expensive because of the way it distorts. When I crank that gain up, you know, if I have a tom, I can make that tom do just the most amazing sing with the distortion from a 1073. So because so many people are, are recording without distortion, it becomes important 
to impart distortion. Yeah. And so the one tool that I use more than anything else these days to deal with this is uh, the Decapitator by yeah. Sound Toys. It's, for, it's the best sounding distortion on the market that I've heard. You know, this is a nine-year-old product, so there may be other products that have that have caught up at this point. But that changed the game when they when when Sound Toys when Ken came out with that plugin. And Logic's got a good distortion plugin, but it's not quite like this. That decapitator is like, especially on low-end instruments, and distortion generally reacts better to low-end. But on low-end instruments, the decapitator is just the best. I you will frequently find it on my kick drums. You wouldn't know it by listening to a mix necessarily. Some you would, others you won't. Just because I put the decap on there doesn't mean I'm distorting the shit out of it. Yeah. Do but you, I am distorting it. Are you using the mix knob? I will use I do use the mix knob. So sometimes I'll distort a lot, I'll punish it and then bring the mix knob way down. Sometimes I'll just add just the tiniest bit of distortion and keep the mix knob all the way up. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, a lot of times I love that thump, not the thump on that sound toys because it, it adds this extra low end thump to the, to, to your signal. So, you know, it's probably the best bass amp plugin out there right now that I've used anyway. Yeah. I mean, I put that thing on, I swear to God, it sounds like I've just plugged in an SVT. <laughs> and that may sound ridiculous, but I, I'm telling you, that's my reaction when I do it. Uh, I'm just like... I don't even know why I would even want to bring in one of those refrigerators again. You know, the SVT Ampeg combo. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the Decapitator Distortion, that entire Sound Toys plug-in line is completely useful. Yeah. Everything he makes is like, you know, there's like probably eight or nine plugins that I uh, in that package that I rarely use, but when I use them, they fix things. That filter freak, if you get a really horrible, horrible kick drum, the worst kick drum you ever got, I don't care what it is. <laughs> it could sound like it could sound like, you know what I mean? Like a little fart. And <laughs> I could put that thing in the filter freak and make it sound like a legit kick drum. I have no idea. And I don't know how. I don't even know. I couldn't tell you how I do it. I just turn the knobs. Yeah. But that thing is just crazy for fixing fucked up shit. That's awesome. So do you do anything specifically in your productions that you think gives you a trademark sound? Well, for the longest time, I was mixing with more low end than anybody else. That's not the case anymore. Everybody finally caught up to me. Uh, thank goodness. In 1997. Yeah, exactly. And there's a reason for that. I came in young in the 90s and I'm like, fuck this. I want low end on rock music. And the big rock mixers who had been mixing for 20 years were like, fuck this. I'm not changing the way I mix just because we changed formats. So I'm highly paid. The labels love what I do. I'm going to keep mixing the way I do with no low end. And so there was this transition. And then you would think that it would only have taken 10 years for people to bring low end into their music. But then what happened is we had the loudness wars. And that also uh, affects the low end because... The louder you want to make something, the the more the low end distorts. So you got to kind of remove low end when you want to make something loud. Right. So now that the loudness wars are over, it took, what, 25 to 30 years between the, the true end of vinyl to finally get the low end curves, full range mixing. <laughs> yeah. And then the crazy part is, you know, you got beats and all of these, these and bows and all these guys that add all this low end to their 
to their consumer products. Right. But we're mixing full range now. We don't need the extra low end anymore. Yeah. Just sounds muddy. Unless you're listening to 80s music. Yeah. So at, <laughs> at some point, you know, you listen to 80s music on some of those those overly hyped uh, headphones and things, right? And it sounds great. It's like, oh, wow, this is all that low end. But that low end's not there. It's all hyped bullshit, right? Yeah. It's all added after the fact. So the, the hyped low end stuff works phenomenal for the 80s stuff. Sounds fantastic. But then everything else just gets, it's just like, you're crushing the system. You can you can't even take the low end because it's just too much low end. It just brings the brings everything to the knee. You get to the chorus and it inverts because there's so much low end coming in in the chorus that it actually the speaker can't handle it and it turns down. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it took a long time for people to finally catch on that you can mix with low end. And it makes mixing more enjoyable. It makes it funner, but it's also can be more difficult, especially with rock music, because rock music is denser. And the denser the music, the less low end you can get away with. The less room and there so, is, period, right? Less room there is, period. And where's the, where's the first place you're going to lose room? In the bottom. Yeah. So, you know, some sparse arrangements, I can, I have so much room for low end. You know, not all arrangements should be sparse, but I, I definitely think that you should consider. If you, let me put it this way, if you're mixing your, 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 a song or your production or whatever, and you're finding that you can't get the low end you want, you probably have too much shit. Yeah, I like that. Wise words for the listeners. So, you know, I'm always very, everything in my productions has a purpose. Every now and then I'll be mixing something. Someone will say, oh, that's designed to be, you shouldn't even hear that. I'm like, well, then it's not going to be in the mix. Oh, no, no, no. It adds a vibe. No, it doesn't. It adds noise. Yeah. All you do is add noise. You're masking. Now, I, this, I, you know, mixing with a producer is not a controversial relationship. If someone really wants that, fine. But I am going to point out to them that all you, they're doing is taking up space. And I will demonstrate to them, you know, just how taking up that space is some negative. So don't take up space just to take up space. Everything in your arrangement should have a purpose. It, I, it should fill a frequency range. It should fill a rhythmic purpose. Not all things fill all purposes. Right? It can fill a rhythmic purpose, a frequency purpose. It could fill uh, a melodic purpose, harmonic. It could be a counter melody, but it has a function. And a lot of times when I'm thinking about what I'm doing in an arrangement, I'm thinking about more than one function. Like, okay, let's lay down a uh, rhythmic part for this section, but we got a glut. If we do like a really high rhythmic part, we're playing it and we can't hear it. And we realize, oh, because we got all this high-end information packed up there, so let's find a spot for this. You know, let's bring the voicings down and find the frequency range where this thing really wants to live and where it fills does good things for our arrangement. Yeah. Not just rhythmically, but frequency-wise, too. And when you think about things like this, and this is the thing that I go about in the book. This is what I talk about in Musician Survival Guide to a Killer Record. Is yep. And this is your latest book, by the way. <laughs> my latest book, which is building a record and, consider, and making sure you consider what every part is for and considering its frequency as well as its other functions, musical functions within your arrangement. Yeah. So actually, so let's get into your latest book a little bit, The Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind the book and what it's trying to accomplish? Yeah, well, the inspiration is simple. I mean, I go online and I, 
uh, I go on these audio forums that used to be populated by engineers and producers mostly, but now they're mostly populated by musicians and asking questions about recording because musicians are recording themselves these days because microphones are cheaper. You know, you can have a whole studio in a box, you know, all you need is a room. So I just would read all this stuff and I'd read a lot of mythology. For example, just about every other day, I'll read a post about someone who gets his guitars big and fat by recording one, panning it to the left, copying it to another track and panning it to the right. <laughs> you chuckle. You chuckle because you know exactly where that guitar is going to sound. Yeah. Where? In the middle. In the middle. Yet, every other day, there's a post that someone does this. Now, I understand there's people in the world that don't know anything and are going to post things like that. That's fine. What's crazy is the 150 comments afterwards that go, yeah, I do the same thing. And then what's even crazier is when someone says, uh, guys, that doesn't make it fatter, that puts the guitar in the middle... You get attacked for being negative. <laughs> it's nuts. So, you know, they're not serious, obviously. But if you're a musician and you're serious, this book can help you. Musician Survival Guide to a Killer Record. And the reason it can help you is because I take away, I break out down the technical down to its most basic form, down to the things that you need to understand in order to make decisions. And that's it. So it doesn't matter what gear you have. It doesn't matter what microphones you have. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. All that matters is I will give you a prescription on A, how to arrange, which is your most important weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, B, how to simplify the process. And that requires discipline. And so we talk about discipline and we talk about trusting yourself. I'm talking about a lot of the things I talk about in other books, but I am speaking... I am getting rid of all the information that you don't need to worry about. At one point in the book, I, I, I actually sit down the reader. I say, go to your DAW, sit down, and I go through, and I, and I have them make, put a guitar part, and then I have them double the guitar part so they, can, so they can hear it on the left and the right, and then I have them do a copy of it so they can hear it in the center. And then we start to mess with phase relationships and phase coherency so that you can understand what it sounds like when your microphones aren't coherent at which point we got I we just had a bunch of musicians go oh, what does coherent mean what does he mean by that it, this is exactly what I'm talking about it, it almost doesn't matter in fact I explained to you how to record stereo the easiest ways to record stereo but I recommend that you don't record stereo if yeah. you're a musician stay in your lane stereo recording is not going to make it better now uh, so what you say, well, the drums sound better when they're bigger. Okay, great. But why are you going to record the drums at your home studio? Unless you've got a sizable room or, you know, have decent ceilings or have a bunch of microphones and mic pre's, you need a lot of equipment to record drums properly. Yeah. And you need space. So I recommend, listen, there's times you want to go to the studio. You just need to know when. That's all. And I explain when and how to use all that and how to make a record so that you can, whatever you've got available to you, art is made with the resources available to you. I explain how you do it. I love it. Yeah. I've, I definitely found the book eye-opening and, uh, and wish it was available when I was getting started probably, you know, 10 years ago. A lot of people tell me that. I wish I had it available when I was starting. <laughs> yeah. 
If only we could go back but, in time. <laughs> but you know, some things just take 30 years to learn. That's all. That's right. I mean, I don't know about anything about 30 years, I guess, other than walking. Uh, <laughs> talking, maybe. Yeah. Mm. But Well, you're doing good at it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're an exceptional talker. I can tell you've been doing it a while. Uh, yes, thank you. I learned from the best. So is there anything in the book in particular that you'd like to share maybe with our audience just to give a, a sneak peek other than what you mentioned? Oh, I think I gave it to you. I think that the listening experiments in there are, the, uh, are probably the most uh, illuminating for people. Yeah, it's out of the box for sure. Speaking of out of the box, I know you've been pretty outspoken in the past about your use of hybrid mixing using a summing box, and you've just already mentioned on the podcast today that your your setup is that something that you think a beginner should worry about, or no, not a beginner. A beginner should worry about recording. Record whatever you can, however you can, the best way that you can, whatever that is. I mean, what are you going to do? You gonna drop two hundred and fifty thousand dollars tomorrow to build to, and and build a studio? Yeah. No. So just use what you got. The first thing you got to do is make something. And then you'll figure out, go from there. You know what I mean? But then start begging, borrowing, and stealing. Then start meeting people and going and saying, hey, I, I did this. You want to add something to it? And then people will add terrible things. And then you won't work with those people. And you'll find somebody else who adds something great. And you'll work with them. You know, I mean, beginners shouldn't worry about any gear other than what you need to make your first creation. And then you grow from there, like everybody else. But what's going to happen is if you go out and you buy every plugin, you buy every plugin package, and you buy you know, the best of this, and you buy all this stuff, you don't know how to use any of it. So you got to learn how to use all of it. Wouldn't it be better just to learn one thing at a time while you're making stuff? Because if you have to learn all of it while you're trying to record, well, then you're not concentrating on what you're recording. So that's kind of a waste of time. So you want to learn how to use the equipment along the way as you make the records. Yeah, and also you'd be totally overwhelmed. That's what I'm saying, yeah. You'd be so overwhelmed. You have too many options. You already have too many options. When I was working at you know, Dimension Sound, the very beginnings of my career, there weren't that many options. There really weren't. There was a plate. That was it. I bought an LXP1, a Lexicon LXP1, because we needed another reverb in there. You know, something a little more modern. Oh, we had an SPX90 because they were cheap. But, you know, I had two 1176s, two Poltex available. Didn't have a, a ton. I had a, a uh, oh, oh, uh, uh, what was that? Dynamite. The Dynamite. That compressor is so good. The Dynamite. And um, you probably never have seen one. Nope. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of options. I don't know how people are supposed to make a record with all the options they have today. So I would say the discipline in the beginning is just concentrate on making the music. And you're going to hate the sound. It's going to sound terrible to you. That's okay. Your first recording is going to be terrible. There's no way around that. Yeah. If you take 10 years to make it, it'll be terrible. So that's why I say in the earlier, just finish records. Just make your art. It's art. Make it. You don't know if it's good until it's done. Love it. So, yeah, you basically answered my last question that I was going to ask you. <laughs> so I think that's... What a, was that? Yeah, uh, some wisdom you could impart on somebody getting started oh. in, in music production. So All right. well, I, th you I think you nailed, it on the, you nailed it on the head there. So I think, I think we could leave the audience with that uh, to think about. Um, how can our audience find out a bit more about you? Type Mixer Man in Google. 
Ignore the Ethan Weiner hate site, though. That guy is fucking crazy. Ha! What the... F He's like, I... Every now... Like, you go and you read it, and it's like the ramblings of a madman. All because he did... Because he got into an internet fight with me. What a loser. Anyway, so... I have my, you know, I have my detractors. But yeah, just type Mixer Man. You can go to my website and find all sorts of things about me on there. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes to your website and to, to check out your latest book. And yeah. and yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been great speaking with you. And uh, I loved hearing your wise, your wise words uh, in person, you know, face to face. Cool, man. Well, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the inv invitation. I appreciate it. For sure. It's an honor that you joined us. Oh, listen, you can get Musician Survival Guide to a Killer Record on Amazon. I recommend you do. It's got it's got 63 five-star reviews on Amazon right now. It only has, Don't look for a 4, 3, 2, or 1-star review because they don't exist there. Of course, I say that. Not <laughs> someone's going to do that. But you know what I'm saying. So people love this book. Larry Crane of Tape Op Magazine, mm -hmm. I sent it to him. Loves the book, says he's going to buy cases of it to give to his clients because you want to know why? Because it will make his clients better recordists. And if your clients come in with better recordings, it's going to make your job easier and you're going to be able to service them better and you're going to make them happier because you're going to fill the things that they can't do for them as a business. And you could say, well, I want to record everything they do. Forget it. That's not going to happen. Get over that. Okay. There's some people that are going to want to record at home for some stuff and should. Why do you want to be there when someone's there trying to figure out for three hours how, uh, you know, how <laughs> apart? You know what I mean? Oh, because I'm getting paid. Well, okay, but they don't want to pay for you to be there while they're trying to figure out a part. So they're going to record at home. So it's good for them to be successful recording at home because the more successful they are recording at home, the more they're going to realize they need you as an engineer. That's awesome advice. Well, thank you so much, Eric, slash Mixer Man. Ha, yeah. No worries. Thanks for having me. And um, I guess that's it. Yeah, that's about it. So I guess uh, until until next time or whatever. I'll All see. right. I'll do it again. Oh, I, I would love that. Okay, Eric, thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Take care. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Secret Sonics. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mixer Man as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, I would really appreciate it if you would go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That really helps the podcast move forward. In addition to that, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app and you could find out more at secretsonics.co where you can also choose an app to subscribe to on. As always, I'm open to your feedback and I would love to hear from you at secretsonics at gmail.com where you can let me know what you want to hear about and who you want to hear from from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Secret Sonics. That about wraps it up for this episode. So thank you so much for tuning in again. And until next time, I hope you guys have a great week and dig in. Secret Sonics.